Once again, if you have joined us since the beginning of the service this morning, we greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and are grateful that you're here to worship with us. We are in the midst of a series in the book of Exodus entitled Delivered. You'll notice that there in the bulletin. You'll also notice the text of Scripture that's before us, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse Uh, 14. And I want to encourage you, if you would, to just follow along with me as I uh, read this text of Scripture and as as we give our time and attention to it and then ask for the Lord's help and His blessing here in just a moment. Let's look together. Exodus chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." On the first day you shall hold an assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day forever." As, a, as a, throughout your generations, as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places, and you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called to the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select for yourselves lambs according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorpost with the blood that is in the basin." None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. For you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever." And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads And worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. The grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we would ask now that you would grant great insight into this marvelous text from Exodus chapter 12. We would pray that you would train us and teach us about the importance of what's happening right now, the worship of the living God, and why circling in and around you through the elements of worship is indeed the way in which you grow up, meet, and change your people. We long to see you today by faith, Lord Jesus. Would you reveal yourself by the Spirit in this word? And would, Lord, you teach us to be more like unto your people, growing into the likeness of Jesus this day, as we worship you in spirit and in truth. Come and meet with us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in a section of the book of Exodus that is, well, right on the cusp of um, the first among a number of really important moments in the redemption of Israel's um, own life as the nation of God. We have looked at the plagues the last uh, several weeks together. We've considered the first nine plagues that are given in Exodus chapter 7 through Exodus 10. We've dipped into Exodus 12, and you saw even hinted at in the text that's before us the threatened plague 10 which is when the Lord sends the angel of death, who's described here in this passage as the destroyer, as the last and final judgment upon the nation of Egypt before he releases his people. And he brings them out through the sign and the wonder of the Red Sea as it parts and then destroys the Egyptian army as those waves of the Red Sea collapse upon them and the people of Israel begin their journey in the wilderness. We're right on the cusp of that moment. Some of you are very thinking, you know, right in your mind, your Charleston Heston is in mind, right? You've got all of those scenes kind of playing before you in the Ten Commandments movie, and you remember those moments, and we're in that high drama, we're in the high tension of the book of Exodus, which is why this text is so unusual, so strange. The people of Israel have seen these nine plagues befall the nation of Egypt, they know They're on the cusp of this tenth plague, the destroyer who's going to come in and lay low, the firstborns from livestock to children all across Egypt. They're waiting on that moment, and then after that moment, they're going to begin to escape from Egypt, and they know that the Lord is going to grant their redemption and their deliverance. And, And yet, from where we are right now in the text, that hasn't happened. None of that has taken place. We're at the Passover. We're at the instructions of taking the meal. The guidance as to what the meal should look like and what it all entails. The promises that were given to God's people that He will not destroy Israel if they apply the blood to the lintels and the doorposts of their homes. He won't destroy them. He will indeed save them. They will take shelter under the blood. They will have refuge given to them, salvation given to them by God. They're at that point in the midst of this story, and God slows everything down right here. 
And he gives them a long instruction in how they're going to worship for generations to come. Now that's a very peculiar thing until you understand that the most important thing about you and me is the fact that we are worshipers of the living God. I wonder if that's what you would describe as most important about you when you were asked what is unique and important about you as a human being, about a person who is fashioned, male or female, uh, young and old, from whatever background, that you would say what is important, what is special, what is maybe the most important aspect of who it is that I am is that I am a worshiper of the living God. I think very rarely would we think in those terms, correct? I love asking people to tell me stories about themselves just to see what it is that they'll tell me. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself. The other day I was actually at Discount Tires because I love hanging out at Discount Tires and was there in the lobby and, and you know, a lot of happy people at Discount Tires and I was, as I was there uh, fellowshipping with them, um, a, a woman came in, a, a delightful woman. She just had that, the kind of countenance, you look at a person and they just sort of bring you to peace. Do you know these people? What a gift those people are to us, to our community. When you just look at them and just their, their visage, just their face, just sort of brings you to peace. She was that kind of woman. I'd never met her before. But she, she kind, of, kind of burst through the door and you could see there was a, a cheeriness uh, about her and, and came right next to me as I was, I was in line and, uh, and just said, oh, the Lord brought me here in very quick time. That was her, that was her comment. And of course, I immediately was interested and so I turned to her and introduced myself, and I, and I, and I, I asked her, um, are, are you a Christian? And you know her response. I've never had anybody respond this way. She responded, it's the most important thing about me. That was her response. Would you respond that way? Would you say, I'm a Christian, it's the most important thing about me? It marks everything about who I am and what it is that I'm committed to. I am one who is devoted to God and to his, his Son, my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the most important thing about me. Do you see, when God is actually calling us and instructing us in worship, he's instructing us in what is first and foremost about every single one of us in this room and every single person actually in the world that we have been shaped by the image of God to be worshipers of the living God. This is why we, Reformed and Presbyterian types, if that's you here in this room, and it's okay if it's not, but we love this document that came out of the 1600s called the Westminster Confession of Faith. We think that this document helps us understand the, the structure of the Bible and some of the big truths of the Scripture. And one of the things that we love about it is this thing called the Shorter Catechism. It's a, it's a question and answer that's meant to train us in the truths of Scripture. And the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, some of you in this room know it, what is the chief end of man? We, we might put it in today's language, what's the purpose for which we have been made? And the Westminster Shorter Catechism responds to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's, that's, our, that's your calling to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. 
We have been made, in other words, that's the Westminster's way of saying, you have been made and designed for worship. I believe that every single one of you in this room have an innate desire to worship God. Now, you may not see it as that. You may not understand it as that. In fact, you may balk at that when I say that every single one of us have an innate desire to worship God. You got to, I don't even know if God exists, much less a desire to, uh, to, to worship Him. And I think that in that question, in that kind of rejoining question, then we need to ask the question, what is worship then? It might not be God that you're thinking of, but I, I want you to know that no matter if, whatever it is, you're worshiping something. Because you are, by nature, designed as a worshiper. Uh, you're designed as, um, well, the old English word for worship kind of hints at this. The old English word for worship was worthship. It was that you see something worth celebrating, praising, pursuing, rejoicing in, giving your life to it. That, if you have anything like that in your life, you're worshiping. And for some of us, it's music in here. We love music. We spend incredible amounts of money and incredible amounts of time on music. For some of us, it's sports. For others of us, it's our jobs. It's our possessions. It's our comforts, our achievements. It's our relationships, whatever it is. Some of us in here... Uh, it, would be, it would be the Lord, and for others of us in here, it would might be things of this world. But there's none of us in here that aren't worshiping. All of us are devoting ourselves to something, and it's because you've been designed by God as a worshiper. You have been designed to determine what is worth it in life. What should you give your life to? And this particular passage... The Lord is before the salvation that even happens, already paving in the way the need for the people of Israel to be worshipers of Him. Now, I want you to see, just very firstly in this text, because this sermon's a little different than some of them. Last Sunday, we had the privilege of looking at the Passover together from our dear brother, Tony Giles, who, praise the Lord, is in Spain this morning. He has made his way across the pond and is there. Thank you for praying for him. Continue to pray for our brother as he serves over there. Um, as he, last week, unfolded the importance of the Passover, its significance, and uh, the ceremony, the feast itself. This morning, we're really focusing on the fact that it's a feast that we continue to feast on. It's a worship directive. It's a pattern for our lives. That's what's really being given to us here in Exodus chapter 12. That's where our focus is. And I want you to see that because you've been designed as a worshiper, God is prioritizing worship in this passage over and even before he saves Israel. That's how much he's committed to his worship. Now, I just want to remind you, when we started this journey of Moses heading into Egypt to talk to Pharaoh, that was way back in Exodus chapter 4. And when we did so, we looked at the scope and sequence of what God said would happen. God said, Moses, I want to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to show you these powers and these signs and wonders. I'm going to use you as my representative to Pharaoh. But when you get there, 
You're going to tell him, let my people go. And you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, no way, Jose. I'm not letting your people go. And I don't know who you think you are coming in here telling me, uh, suzerain and king of the world, master of the kingdom of Egypt, the greatest superpower of the day. I don't know who you think you are telling me what it is uh, to do. And, and Moses, I just want you to know that over time, um, I'm going to have you keep going to him. He's going to keep saying no, but I'm going to just whittle away at all of his idols, all the things he trusts in. You see, that's what the plagues were. Do you remember this? The plagues all represented idols that the Egyptians and that Pharaoh trusted in. When he blotted out the sun, the sun god Ra, when he, when he made the Nile bloody, when he sent in the insects, each of these represented deities that the Egyptians held as they, someone they could trust in. They thought they were worth homage and worship. And God was saying, your gods are in powerless in the face of what I would bring. And he's humbling Pharaoh himself, even letting Pharaoh know who Pharaoh thought he was a god, that he's now going to take his own son, who would be the next deity to take the throne of Egypt. We're seeing God lay low all of the idols and all of the power in Egypt, uncreating that kingdom. Why? Because he wants to show that he alone is worthy of worship. He alone is the true and living God. That's the purpose of what he's doing. He's showing the priority of it. And so when he came to Pharaoh, Moses said, Let my people go, speaking on the behalf of God. And God said, I want you to let my people go, Exodus 4, because I want my people to worship me. To worship me. Now listen. Very often when we think about salvation, we think about it in this way. God loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. He loves us. Period. End of the story. Nothing more to say. As critical and as important and as central and as often each week we must rehearse that very truth before the Lord. We must ask a further question. Saved for what? We know that we're saved from sin and death. Those are the enemies that Jesus was victorious over on our behalf. And when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved. Is that all there is now? Just saved? No. You've been saved to worship Him. You've been saved to serve Him. You've been saved to see that all of your devotion, all of your honor, and all of your praise, He is worthy of. You've been saved for worship. Now, here's why this is so clear within the text. The people of Israel are on the cusp of the death angel coming into their midst. They're they're at a point of high tension. You would expect that God would say, now listen, hang tight, put the blood on the door, and then when we get through on the other side of the Red Sea, I'm not going to tell you about all that yet, but it's going to be awesome. When we get on the other side of the Red Sea, I'm going to share with you a couple of things about worship, ways in which I'd like you to live. Notice he doesn't do that. Before he saves Israel, he's instructing Israel in worship. The 10th plague hasn't happened. The exodus out of Egypt hasn't happened. The Red Sea event hasn't happened. 
Why is he spending so much time instructing them on worship before he even saves them? Because worship is the end game. Worship is what he has made us for. Devotion utterly to him is what he's crafted us for. He wants us to see that the priority of worship is the forefront of this celebration of Passover and the unleavened bread feast. Notice here this priority that's showing itself through and through is that we don't stop at salvation, but we go further and say, because we're now saved, how then should we live? What has the Lord called us to? To glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Do you know what? That's, that's what God is committed to. God is committed to His glory and you glorifying Him. And He enjoys you and I most when we're enjoying Him. That's where His joy just becomes all the more. Because He sees Christ being reflected through us. He sees his own son's love and devotion changing us. Where we're willing to do whatever it is that he's called us to do to be followers of him. This is the priority of worship that we see in this text. He's already instructing them in worship before he's even saved them. But I want you to see secondly in this text that he tells us about the practice of worship. What should this worship actually look like? Look at verse 14. He says, this day shall be for you a memorial day. It literally reads a day of remembrance. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Then again, look at verse 17. You shall observe this day throughout the generations as a statute forever. And again in verse 24, he says this. You shall observe this rite This right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. So notice what he's saying about this Feast of Passover. Also referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Same feast. He's saying to us, you're going to remember this annually. And you're going to revisit it over and over and over again. Now, what's remarkable about that is... He's actually ordering the days and the times of the people of Israel at this point. Did you know that Passover is actually the first celebratory holiday in the Jewish religious calendar? Notice how it's structured here in the text on the first month of the year. Well, the first month of the year, spiritually speaking, religiously speaking, for the people of Israel was the month of Nisan. And it was in the 14th day of that month, for seven days, they're going to eat the, the, the unleavened bread leading up to Passover. Now, here's what's interesting. That's actually not the beginning of the calendar year. It's the beginning of the Jewish religious calendar. So it's very similar to what we often do here at Cornerstone, right? What's the beginning of the church calendar year? Well, if you're looking at the unfolding of the church calendar, it's Advent, which means somewhere at the end of November or the 1st of December is actually the beginning so to speak, of the religious calendar. Well, the beginning of the religious calendar in the Old Testament was Passover. The first festival to celebrate was Exodus. Why is that important? This is how God wants the people of Israel to begin their devotion to Him. This event is going to be to them their salvation. 
They're going to look back to this event and say that's when it all began. The great redemption from slavery as we are made sons and daughters of the Lord as he carries us from slavery into the new promised land. This is their very real sense, the beginning of their calendar. And what it is that we see is that every year when the month of Nisan rolls around, uh, they celebrate it. Numbers chapter 9 tells us that they celebrated it throughout the 40 years of their wilderness wanderings. When Joshua led the people of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land, you know the first thing they did? They celebrated Passover. They kept the feast. That's the language here in the text. Why did God establish a feast that they would have to go back to over and over and over to remember event? Because he wanted to weave the gospel the good news of their deliverance into their soul. He wanted it so much, he turned it into a meal. And he says, I want you to swallow my deliverance. I want you to eat it around the table. I want you to be reminded of how I cared for you and loved you and protected you. And I want, as you partake in it, for your joy to be increased in me and your worship to continue to be pronounced in me. It's the glory of what worship is meant to do. It's meant to call us to remember. You see, that's why we're here today. You know what worship is in one way of speaking? It's a practice of remembering what you already know and totally forget every week. Is that not right? Don't you, like me, come into this room each week like, like not knowing up from down, from left to right, And then in the midst of worship, as the psalmist says, in the house of prayer, all becomes plain. And again, you see the eternal things and how you've given up your life to the temporal things this day. And now you're restored in a way that you had lost your way in the world and you remembered. You you notice normally, you don't really, I mean, for those of you who've come to worship for a long time, you, you sometimes learn brand new things, but you very often... Remember the things that you know. Bingo. That's exactly what worship is. It's meant to be a practice of remembering what it is that God has done. Notice he calls it a Memorial Day. We've got Memorial Day coming up here in America, right? Coming up next weekend and on Monday, we'll remember those who died in service to this country. It's a memorial day. It's a remembrance day where we go back and we reflect on the sacrifice that has been given. What is actually taking place here? We're to go back and reflect on the sacrifice, the lamb, the feast. Now, notice what's so interesting about it is that he, he, he not only causes us to remember, he's, he calendars it. He doesn't just say to you like, hey, somewhere along the way, y'all think of this again. That's not what he says. He says, on the 14th day of the first month, and for seven days, I want you to eat unleavened bread. I want you to go through the work of Passover. And as you eat the bitter herbs, I want you to remember your bitter slavery. And as you eat the unleavened bread, I want you to remember that you had to get out in haste. Didn't have time for the leaven to be able to to raise the bread up. You just ate unleavened bread. And as you notice in this text, didn't you? That you needed to get all the leaven out of your house. Uh, Leaven later in the Old Testament and and then confirmed in the New Testament becomes a a symbol or an image for sin. 
for unrighteousness. And it's meant to say that you clean your, the, as you would cl- spring clean your house. Some of you have been spring cleaning your house, right? You've been, you've been finally getting to the garage, right? Finally cleaning it out. Well, this is, this is the spring cleaning of the soul. Passover is. It's where you would get all of the leaven, all of the sin, so to speak, symbolically out of, out of the house in order that you might be wholly devoted to the worship of the Lord. And as they ate the unleavened bread, they thought of the purity and they thought of the holiness that the Lord had called them to. And they thought and went back over the stories that their children were asking them about because they weren't there when they saw it. And then they ate the lamb and they dipped the hyssop branch in the Blood, and they reenacted and relived the memory of Passover in the Exodus. You know, I was struck this week how this works just the way that we work, right? We had a birthday in our house this week. Our son Luke turned 10, double digits this week. And as Facebook is known to do, it, it gives me memories, right? Does it give you memories? It gives, me, gives none of you memories, apparently, but it gives, it gives me memories, and the memories that it gives me is of former birthdays of Luke, right? And so I, I remembered, oh, that's what we did last year, and that's what we did the year before, and, 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 and these things started popping up on my phone, and, and I remembered Luke, and I got all the way back to his birth picture in the hospital when he's wrapped up in that little burrito blanket, you know what I'm talking about? And, and, he's, and I was like, and you know, as I'm looking at each of these pictures, and I'm going down remembering lane, what's happening to my soul? It's tenderizing. Gratefulness, joy, emotions begin to show up. Because all of a sudden, my son, who I just wanted him to clean his room a minute ago, is now to me a gift. What happened? What's happening right now to you and me? We're remembering what our God has done. And our hearts are softened. And we're reliving it. There's a rehearsal that often goes with that. I, was, I didn't think of this until I was in the first sermon this morning. But just, just triggered back as I guess I'm on memory lane. But when Christy and I married, it'd be 21 years coming up in July. We left our reception and we, we didn't get any food at our wedding. Anybody else have this issue? Like you're thinking of food. Like everybody else ate, but uh, we fed them. You know, we didn't get any food. So we leave and we're starving and we didn't really take any food with us. We get down, we get down to the destination, down to the beach and we're uh, unpacking and starving, you know, right? And, and all we find in, in our stuff is, is Bark's root beer and goldfish. Those are the two things we find. And, and what did we do? Well, we ate Bark's root beer and, and goldfish. Uh, on, on our wedding night. Now, it's a, it's a dinner of champions, as you know. I mean, coveted meal, um, root, root beer and goldfish. Occasionally, for our anniversary, you know, you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll drink root beer and we'll eat goldfish. And, and, you, and you know what we'll do? We'll remember Remember, 
We'll remember the love. We'll remember the memories. We'll remember the depth. We'll remember the meaning in the trivial root beer and goldfish. What is God doing as he has them rehearse the supper over and over again? Are they going somewhere? No, just in their soul. Just in their soul. And as they go back to the deliverance in their soul, you know what happens? They're renewed. They're alive again. They're awake to the reality again. They're back. They're restored. That's the goal of worship. That's what it's meant to do. And he calendars it and he rehearses it because, you know, as he... As we practice worship, as we give priority to worship, you know what begins to happen? We begin to experience the power of worship. The power of worship begins to shine through us. All of a sudden, we begin to be shaped from the inside out. Do you know this is why we have various elements in a worship service? Maybe you've wondered like, how we come up with these, these worship services. Like, you know, who, you know what a mad scientist you know, sits down and goes through these worship services and, and designs them. Well, as you're thinking through worship, the recognition is the various elements like the eating of the, the bitter herbs and the eating of the unleavened bread and the blood and the lamb are all picturing to you something. And as you walk through the order of worship this morning, it's taking you through the recognition of God's praise for the glory of who he is. It's taking you into the depths of your sin Confessing before you. It's rising you up to the assurance that he loves you and forgives you. He's instructing you now from his word. And he's going to lead you to communion as you come to his table. And he's going to send you out with a blessing and a benediction. And along the way, your heart will be touched in a variety of ways. Sometimes it'll be, believe it or not, unusually in the sermon. Very often in the hymns. Very often in the prayers. And sometimes when you put that wine to your lips. In all of these rehearsals, as you're walking through the truths of the Scripture, the worship of the living God is coming to you through a variety of channels. You see, it's not just a matter of words. It's a, it's a matter of actions. Do you notice he gave them a meal? He didn't have to give them a meal. Why did he give them a meal? Because he wanted not just their minds to think ideas. He wanted their bodies to be devoted to him. He wanted them to taste and see that he's good. He wanted them to touch the realities of the kingdom. He wanted the whole of who they are. That's why as we walk through the order of service this morning, it would be multiple things that might actually stir the heart and the affection of you as people. And it's working in conscious ways and it's working in subconscious ways. Right? Sometimes you, you have a revelation or a dawning or a renewal. But let's be honest. Sometimes worship, well, it's just not very exciting. I said it. It's okay. I said it. Some of you are thinking that now. It's not very exciting. That's true. That's difficult for us, especially North American types. When we think worship should feel like a concert or an event or an athletic event or whatever we think it should be. But notice it's calendared and it's regular not. Because every moment of the service is absolutely inspirational. And it changes us from the inside out. There's a method and a wisdom to the rhythm and the pattern that shapes you. Not just from the inside out, but from the outside in. We tend to come into worship saying, Oh, I hope the sermon is finally about something that I care about. 
or they sing that hymn, or they do something that means something to me. And what that actually means is that we're really focused on ourselves rather than God most of the time, even when we're in worship. It's okay, there's grace for that. But the reality is that we overestimate oftentimes what one worship service might do, and we underestimate what 20 years of worshiping might do. When you steadily come to worship when you don't want to. And in the midst of worship, you love him again. And you love him again. And you love him again. When you are over and over shaped by the consistency of steady worship. He calendared it annually. He wanted them to rehearse the details. Not because every kid who was six years old is like, Hey, I want to go play Xbox. Okay? I don't want to sit at the Passover feast. Of course that was the case. Son, sit at the Passover feast. Again. And again. And again. Because the wisdom of worship leads from priority to practice to power over time, leading us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what happens? You know, when, on the very uh, you know, night in which uh, Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, he was having the Passover feast, right? And the Passover feast was moving from a, a feast that was, um, uh, that was symbolized something to the fulfillment of the thing. And I just happened to just think this week of just what it must have <laughs> felt like to be the disciples in the moment they had the Lord's Supper and what it must have been like to be an Israelite on the night the death angel is coming into Egypt, right? Um, so the Passover uh, for Jesus in that last night, he's telling them things like he's going to die. And they're like, oh, just stop it. This is bad news. And on the night of the Passover, the original Passover, people were dying all around you. Like if you have a sweet idea of what this meal was like, you're missing it. You might hear the shrieks and horrors of people who found their firstborns dead in the house next door as you eat your lamb. That's sobering. This was the nature of that evening. And you know, some of the people ate that lamb and they realized that the firstborn didn't die and they did so with confidence and with joy. They're like, look at our God. Give me some more of that lamb. You know, that's, that's what they did. Others of them, they were sick to their stomach and could barely take a bite. Because they were petrified. They weren't sure if they could trust the promise of the Lord. Now let me ask you. Who got saved? Both of them. Both of them. Do you know what that teaches you? It teaches you that the strength of worship doesn't come from the strength of your faith. But it comes from the object that you're trusting in. That's where the strength comes from. And it comes from the one who has promised to protect you. The one who has reserved the death for himself so that you will be shielded and can take refuge under the, the blood of the Lamb. It, it teaches us that what we do in the midst of worship is not that we're always into it, but that our God is. And He's with us. And He loves us. Even when we sin in the midst of worship, He loves us and He cares for us. And I don't know about you, but that makes me want to worship Him. 
Because we want to love him, serve him, study about him, know his word, and come week after week to the feast that I might be shaped by his love. I pray today as we learn to eat in faith and we learn to eat as it were unto faith that we learn that God today in the midst of worship is drawing you into communion with him. And that the most important thing that you will do this week you're doing right now. Because this is preparing you for what you will do in the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord Jesus Christ and his people for all eternity. Missions may fade. Discipleship may stop. But worship will go on forever. Let's prepare our hearts in just that way. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would meet us in these truths from your word and that we would find in worship week after week that you are shaping us, you are molding us after the likeness of Christ, that we are becoming more like you as we worship you because we are seeing you and honoring you for the God and the Savior that you are. Lord, would you meet us today as the day of salvation. Today is the day of growth and change. Would you make under these means of grace instruments of powerful change in the lives of us here in this room? And would you call us next week when we gather and the week after that and the week after that until we don't worship anymore here and we worship forever around your throne of grace? Would you prepare us through the litany of Lord's days until every day is the Lord's day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.